0: You're listening to the Ray Hanania Podcast, a weekly overview of all my opinion columns, my radio interviews, and my reports on Middle East topics and on mainstream American politics. My Middle East columns are published in the Arab News newspaper, the Middle East Monitor online, and the Arab Daily News online. My mainstream columns are published at SuburbanChicagoland.com And in seven newspapers in the southwest region of Chicagoland, including the Regional News, the Reporter Newspaper, the Des Plaines Valley News, and the Southwest News Herald. This podcast also includes my radio show broadcast in Detroit on the second Friday of every month, live on WNZK AM 690 radio, and also live online. It's a lot of information and a lot of resources. But you can get all of this on my writings and podcasts by visiting my website at hanania.com. I hope you sit back and enjoy this latest podcast. This week's group of columns appeared in the Arab News newspaper in Saudi Arabia looking at the uh, uh, efforts by Israel's racist apartheid government. To uh, undermine the voices of its Arab citizens. I'm not talking about the Palestinians that are occupied in the West Bank or occupied East Jerusalem. I'm talking about Palestinian Arabs, Christian, and Muslims who live in Israel and ostensibly, um, at least the Israelis claim, have equal rights and equal citizenship. But Israel does everything they can to undermine the voice of uh, non-Jews in Israel. Uh, the second column is in Middle East Monitor uh, which is based in London regarding the New Zealand massacres and how it brings up the memory of a uh, massacre that took place in 1994 by a US doctor who happened to be from Chicago and who had dual citizenship, Israeli and American citizenship. You know the concept that uh, uh, Minnesota Congresswoman Elon Omar was criticized for raising. Um, the killer in the uh, uh, 1994 attack on a mosque uh, was Baruch Goldstein, who's been uh, turned into a hero in Israel. And of course the third column, which is mainstream, um, focuses on the uh, uh, politics of taxation, noting that Illinois' financial problems you know, uh, dominate the, the list of the worst uh, political uh, governments in, in the United States. Illinois is ranked as the 49th worst state in the country when it comes to taxation. So let's start with the mainstream issue, uh, the column uh, about Illinois' fan- financial problems and how the uh, politicians in Illinois, including the newly elected Governor J.B. Pritzker, are addressing the issues in the wrong way. Um, this appeared in the Southwest News newspaper group and is available on SuburbanChicagoland.com. So, in that case, what I did was, you know, I looked at a a report that was issued by WalletHub.com, which is a uh, group that provides uh, credit and, you know, analysis on uh, economy and financial matters at WalletHub.com. You can go there and see these reports. So they do a lot of these reports. One of the reports looked at uh, all 50 states and then, uh, the uh, Washington DC, the District of Columbia, and compared them based on how much taxes they impose on their residents. Now uh, if you just take the states, the 50 states, Illinois ranks 49th worst state when it comes to taxing its residents. It has the 49th worst policies. The only state worse in Illinois is New York and you know I don't think it's coincidence that these are considered blue states that uh, supported Hillary Clinton. Um, it kind of exposes the hypocrisy of you know the media's uh, hard uh, attack against the Republicans and conservatives and Donald Trump while giving uh, Hillary Clinton, um, Chuck Schumer and uh, the rest of them a pass when it comes for excessive taxation, which is one of the biggest problems facing Americans today. They pay too much and they get very little from government. That's really the problem. Um, Governor Pritzker um, announced that he was going to change the state of Illinois' income tax uh, uh, process. And uh, two years ago, they raised the income tax from 3.75, that was back in 2017, to 4.95. And there was a suggestion it was to deal with the state's problems. So it went up almost 1.2%, which was a lot. I mean, it went up 25, you know, probably almost 30% they raised it to generate income, 30% more revenue from uh, state income tax collections. So what Pritzker said, instead of eliminating that and bringing it back down to 3.75%, what he said he's going to do is for people who are poor, um, because he divided the population into three categories, poor middle class and people making over 250,000. what he's going to do for the poor is reduce the uh, income tax um, to negligible levels. He's going to keep the 4.95 percent income on middle class. Uh, Illinois residents, um, and then he's going to increase the income tax to 7.95% for people who are making $250,000 a year. Now, you got to I mean, just a little segue here for a second. When we talk about poverty, I think the poverty level is something like $18,000 a year. I don't think these numbers that we're using are applicable today. They they were good 30, 40 years ago. You know, when you say somebody's making $250,000, um, that was a huge amount of money, but today, two hundred fifty thousand dollars is a little bit better. It, you know, you're at the higher end of the middle class because the middle class are making money. But that two hundred fifty thousand dollars is nothing compared to the cost of services. Uh, a middle class car is fifty thousand dollars. A middle class home is three to four hundred thousand dollars. So by separating it at two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you're really hitting. Uh, the real middle class in America, you're giving them a punch to their gut, and you're gonna. And Pritzker is trying to use these really, I, I hate to use the word fake numbers, but uh, distorted numbers to say that the poor, the poor. Listen, anybody making less than fifty thousand dollars should be considered poor, because I don't know how they live. They don't obviously fifty thousand dollars a year. You can't own a home, especially if you have a. A husband, a wife, and two kids—you can barely pay for anything. And the middle class is probably about fifty thousand to probably four hundred thousand dollars, and for even four hundred thousand, maybe even five hundred thousand, you're kind of living at the upper end. You can afford a decent college. You got two cars. You got a decent home, probably about worth three to four or five hundred thousand dollars a year. But we don't change those numbers. And in reality, Pritzker's uh, tax hike um, is going to punish the middle class. But the worst part of it is that, you know, when you look at Illinois, um, it isn't just that we're the highest, one of the highest taxing bodies, the second highest taxing body in the whole country. Um, It's also that we have the worst pension system where pensions have been used to reward uh, political workers and patronage, and to also for politicians to give themselves benefits at the expense of the taxpayers. These pensions are excessive. You can retire at 50 in many cases. you can retire at 62. You get mo- you don't get like 75 percent of your income in retirement. You sometimes get two, three hundred percent of your income in retirement. And a lot of these things are unjustified earnings these politicians and patronage people didn't earn these pensions. They were given to them by other politicians to secure their vote and protect their positions in public office. Um, It's that corrupt pension system in Illinois that's driving the debt in this state and in many democratic states like New York. Those pension problems they're not funded so they constantly are turning the taxes to pay for pension debt, what they really need to do, and what Pritzker should do, and that's the you know fundamental message of my column, is that if you're going to deal with the real problem in, Il- in Illinois, you got to deal with pensions. And the way to deal with pensions is to deal with not with taxation by raising taxes, but to deal with the pension system. Taxes are not the answer to Illinois' pension problems or the financial problems. That And you need to look at who these states are again, because I think it's really important. A lot of people are moving out of Illinois to get away from the suppressive taxing environment. Um, New York is the worst state. Illinois is the next worst state, followed by Hawaii, Washington state, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Iowa, and Kansas. Most of them are Democratic states, but not all. And when you look at... Um, The ten best states, these are places with the lowest tax burden on residents or no state taxes um, taken from your retirement money like Social Security or even your pension, if it's reasonable. Uh, Those states are Alaska, the best, Delaware, next, Montana, Nevada, Florida, New Hampshire, Wyoming, Utah, Tennessee, and Colorado. Um, If you're 60 to between 60 and 70 and you're either retired or you're retiring, Um, on Social Security and a small pension. If you're living in any of the 10 worst states, uh, New York, Chicago, Hawaii, Washington, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Iowa, and Kansas, you need to leave. And you need to leave as soon as possible because you are going to be paying uh, for the problems of those states um, from the meager resources that you're going to get. You need to move to one of these good states like Alaska, Delaware, Montana, Nevada, Florida. A lot of seniors go to Florida. New Hampshire, Wyoming, Utah is a great state, Tennessee, and Colorado. You can go there and you can get the most for your money. Um, Now switch to the Middle East topics. In the Middle East Monitor, the column focused on the uh, uh, terrorist attack by this Australian white guy against two mosques in which 50 Muslims, as they were praying, were gunned down and massacred and killed. And what was interesting was that this happened uh, earlier this uh, month, um, but it is almost 25, it's a little more than 25 years since one of the first terrorist attacks against a mosque took place. That was in February tw- on February 25, 1994, by a US doctor Um, based in Chicago, who has dual citizenship, who had dual citizenship. His name is Baruch Goldstein. He was a true terrorist. And what he did, and he enjoyed dual citizenship and dual loyalty to Israel, using his um, benefits as an American to bolster his position um, to uh, support Israel's apartheid racist policies. Um, and this is interesting because he, this dual citizenship, he served in the Israeli military, but he never served in the American military. And it, that's exactly what Congresswoman from Minnesota, Elon Omer, was warning about. It's antithetical to the American principles, and she was accused of being anti-Semitic by raising the issue of dual loyalty by supporters of Israel. Uh, Goldstein walked into the mosque called the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron, on February 25th, 1994, and he was in Israeli military uniform with an Israeli unit. Um, they had divided uh, Hebron um, and created a illegal, uh, uh extremist Jewish-only settlement in Hebron, um, and they were uh, doing everything. All those soldiers were there to protect, you know, I think it was like 200 or 145 uh uh, Jews who were living in that settlement. They were protecting them um, and abusing the 120,000 Christians and Muslims who were living in Hebron. And he walked in there, he was with these soldiers, he had a weapon in hand, walked into the mosque, began firing, he killed 29 Muslims who were kneeling and wounded more than 125 other Muslims in the Ibrahimi Mosque. It was the worst act of terrorism back in the 90s, and it then sparked a whole series of retaliatory attacks from Palestinians uh, who used suicide bombings, because the first suicide bombing attack occurred after um, this uh, Baruch Goldstein terrorist attack in Hebron, and I think that was in Afula, one of the cities in Israel. And then we would see this spike in suicide bombings, and then Israel would take control of the uh, uh, propaganda and basically say that it was terrorizing Palestinians um, to uh, respond to the suicide bombings, when in fact the suicide bombings were a response to Israel's uh, military and government terrorism. Baruch Goldstein wasn't killed by an Israeli soldier trying to protect the people who were praying. Baruch Goldstein was killed by uh, survivors in the mosque who were wounded, and as their friends were laying there on the ground dying, Bleeding to death, and the Israelis wouldn't help anybody. Um, they grabbed Brook Goldstein. he fought with them, and they ended up killing him. That was the only reason his massacre ended, not because of what the Israelis did. Um, you could look that one up at Middle East Monitor um, online at uh, middleeastmonitor.com uh, to find that column. In fact, all my columns over there. The uh, Arab news column talks about the election process in Israel. There's an election April 9th and uh, Israel's government has been doing everything it can to undermine the vote of the non-Jews in Israel, the Arab vote, Arab citizens who vote. Now it is a fact that the Arabs undermine their own vote. They're 20 percent of the population but uh, really only 10 percent of the qualified Arabs actually vote. That's why they've only elected in the last election Twenty fifteen, they only elected thirteen Arab Israelis to the Knesset on these Arab part from these Arab parties. Um, that's like about what ten uh, percent, maybe a little less, uh, maybe a little bit more. I mean, maybe like ten and a half percent of the Knesset's hundred and twenty seats. Um, if the population of twenty percent of Israel, which is Arab, um, voted to its capacity, they probably would have twenty four seats. Uh, in the Knesset, if all the Arabs would vote and stop this process of cutting their nose off to spite their face, where they punish themselves by boycotting, by opposing, you know, uh, normalization with Israel, you know, not every Israeli is a bad person, not every Israeli leader is a bad person. A lot of Israelis, a lot of Jews. American Jews, Israeli Jews, European Jews, Jews all over the world who support peace and want this violence to end. So boycotting the entire country of Israel, in my opinion, is wrong. The BDS movement should focus only on the terrorist Jews in the Israeli settlements who are stealing land with the support of Israel's racist terrorist government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. Now Netanyahu is in trouble, so he thought, geez, you know the left that's opposing him, he's the far right, his coalition in the Knesset, um, they control just over 60 votes or more, just a little bit more than half the uh, seats in the Knesset. They know that the Arabs could be uh, instrumental uh, factor in their undermining their right-wing control of the government by supporting the middle and centrist uh, Israeli parties and the Israeli left. Um, So what he wants to do, Netanyahu's government, and the right-wing racist haters in Israel's government, is they want to undermine these Arab voters in Israel. And one thing they did through the Central Election Committee in Israel, which is controlled by the government, was to uh, reject and prevent two of the parties that helped elect the 13 Arab uh, members, uh, Israeli members to the Knesset, they banned them from running in the April 9th elections intentionally to reduce the vote. If that ban had stood, um, it would have reduced the number of Arabs in the Knesset probably in half to about six, maybe seven, but more likely six Uh, out of 120, reducing, you know, the percentage from 10 and a half or 11% down to five. And believe me, it should be 20%, which equals the population. They should have 24 people in the Knesset. But the Israelis, uh, the right-wing Israelis, don't want non-Jews, Christians and Muslim Arabs in Palestine um, and in Israel's government to have any influence. So they've done everything, including, you know, the the Arab parties were the smallest parties. So Uh, beginning since Israel's founding, what they did was first they prohibited Arabs from running for office. Then when they allowed them to run, they put a minimum percentage of votes that were needed for any Arab party uh, or any party, even Jewish parties, uh, but it never did apply to them. They had to have a minimum 1%, then 2% of the vote. If they didn't reach that threshold, no matter what they got, they couldn't put any people in the Knesset to serve. Um, and that would give the other parties, the Jewish parties, um, more control over the Knesset. And just recently, a few years ago, they raised the requirement, again, to 3.25% of the votes cast. In order for you to qualify, you need to win at least 325 of the total votes cast in the country. And again, that was to target the smaller groups like the Arab parties. But in 2015, the Arab parties came together. Together, they created a joint list, and they ran as one group and elected 13 people, and uh, which meant that they got at least 10% uh, or more of the uh, total votes way above the 3.25. But had they cut this down, it might have even jeopardized those remaining Arab parties in this election. If the CEC ruling had stood, it would have cut down the potential of the Arab parties that were still running to beat that threshold of 3.25 to five percent, which would have given them maybe about six members. In fact, it it might have been possible that the CEC and the right-wing apartheid Israeli government could have actually resulted in seeing no Arab-Israeli slates winning any seats in the Knesset, giving the right-wing apartheid control of country, you know, of Israel even more control. Um, but fortunately, the Israeli Supreme Court stepped in. Now, there is an Arab on the Israeli Supreme Court. I met him, uh, the Supreme Court Justice Gibran. He was, came here to Chicago. He's, a, I would say he's a little conservative um, in terms of the Arab population, but he's centrist in terms of Israel overall. Um, the Israeli Knesset voted to overturn the Israeli Central Election Committee ruling and allowed all of the Arab parties to be on the ballot and they will be there on April 9th. The election April 9th in Israel is going to be very important because it could result in the uh, establishment of a uh, kind of of right-of-center or maybe even left-of-center government through because, you know, the Knesset and Israel's government is based on uh, a parliamentary system where parties come together and they have to form a coalition. Each party wins a certain number of votes based on the people who vote for them. And uh, if any coalition that has at least 61 votes in the 120 Knesset uh, uh, government can then control the government and then they can appoint their own Knesset. Now, I'm not saying that uh, those, you know, uh, centrist or even left-wing coalitions are going to immediately establish peace you know, the problem in Israel isn't the politics. The problem in Israel are the Israeli people, the growing number of people who are racist haters um, and who have influence in the government. The fact that every year, for for the past 20 years, they've been able to elect right-wing leaders after murdering Yitzhak Rabin and uh, ousting his pro-peace, you know, uh, movement, Um, their strength has grown. And that's because of voters, not because of the politicians, but Israeli voters who embrace racism and who support racism. And a lot of those voters are settlers who basically are terrorists with armed guns. These settlers teach their children uh, to hate. They teach their children how to use weapons. And they teach their children that violence against Christians or Muslims is legitimate and uh, a way to defend um, the country from uh, uh, establishing peace. These right-wing uh, parties, they're not, most of them are Zionists, but you know the not all Zionists. They're bad again. It's uh, there are a lot of Israeli Jews and Zionists who support peace, and we should be working with them to support them. Um, and the Arab voters in Israel should stop this. Uh, spiting themselves, cutting off their nose to spite their face, refusing to vote. They need to stop that. They need to stop the boycotting. The best way to change a system is to do it from within and use the power that they have instead of throwing it away just to make themselves feel good. So all those columns are available. Now you can go to Hanania.com, which I call the Daily Hookah, uh, the Daily Hookah.com or Hanania.com and you'll see all my writings. Um, you go to the column menu tab, you'll see Suburban Chicagoland, you'll see the Arab News columns, the links, the links to the Middle East Monitor column, the Arab Daily News column, and then links to like the Regional News, the Eurasia Review, which picks up my columns, and past areas of writing like Creator Syndicate. I was a syndicated columnist with creators for many many years, um, and also I wrote for Al Jazeera, the Jerusalem Post, El Arabiya, Ynet News, Yediyoth Ahramat, and I would publish these columns there. I won a lot of awards for those. So you go to Hanania.com and uh, you'll be able to see links to it. And I also want to point out one new thing. You know, this podcast, Middle East and Mainstream, uh, with Ray Hanania, I have a second podcast which focuses strictly on politics it's called Ray Hanania on Politics Podcast. And if you go to hanania.com you will see the link to those podcasts. If you're not interested in the Middle East and you just want to hear about local stuff, you know, American politics, that City Hall politics, Cook County politics, that's where you can go. And those websites um, where, that you can go to, and I know that I, I hate to give you so many websites, but politics.com. Is one link to those podcasts or on deadlinepodcast.com. That's another uh, domain that'll take you to the uh, Ray Hanania on Politics, Media, and Life podcast. Take it easy, everybody. It's nice talking to you, and I appreciate you joining me and listening to my podcast. This has been the Ray Hanania podcast, a weekly overview of all my opinion columns, my radio interviews, and my reports on Middle East topics and on mainstream American politics. For more information, go to hanania.com. Thanks for listening.